0: All right, morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Good. Hey, my name is Johnny Whitcomb, and it is my privilege to open God's Word with you today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12, reading verses 28 through 34. Um, That's on page 1301 in the Journey Bible. If you want to follow along, there's some in the seats around you. Um, But we're going to be continuing on in our series. called Real Jesus, The Road You Don't Expect. We've broken up Mark into three parts, and Jesus is nearing his final destination. He's on the road to his final destination, which is the cross on our behalf to save us from our sins. And the road to get there is wrought with challenges. There's challenges all across the board. The last two weeks, we've looked at challenges that Jesus has faced with the social, political, and religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they're all challenging Jesus. They're trying to trick him and trip him up. And Jesus responds and he aces their test. He meets their challenges. It's some really impressive stuff. If you weren't here the last two weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. They're on our, our YouTube and Facebook pages. Uh, Scott and Norm did a great job. But today, Jesus offers us a challenge back. There's one final conversation that he has in this set of three where one of the teachers of the law comes to him and he says, What is the most important command? What is the most important command? That God gives us. And Jesus responds with a challenge. And this is the big idea for today. Sign up for the greatest challenge, living the greatest commandment. Sign up for the greatest challenge, living the greatest commandment. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. 13.01 in the Journey Bible. Here we go. Says this. One of the teachers of the law and heard. The, one of the teachers of the law heard them and uh, came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, "Of all of the commandments, which is the most important?" The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There are no command. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and with all your love. I lost my spot, hang on here. And to love your neighbor as yourself is, the most important than, is more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far off from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared ask him any more questions. The greatest commandment. You may be seated. No one dared ask him any more questions, but I'm going to start my time with you asking you a question. Raise your hand. If you have ever signed up for a challenge, you knew it was going to be hard, you knew it was going to be difficult, but you signed up for it anyway. When I think about that concept, I think about my very first um, semester taking a biblical language. Okay? So I went to Bible school, I had to take four semesters of a biblical language, Hebrew or Greek. I chose Greek, it's the language of the New Testament. And when I took Greek, I had two options for professors, okay? I had Dr. Wilson or I had Dr. Sauer, okay? Now, Dr. Sauer, he was a little bit older and he was a little bit easier. He just reputationally, people said, this class is the easier Greek class to take. Dr. Wilson was just an amazing man, God-fearing kind-hearted, soft-spoken. He ended up um, leading my wife and I through our premarital counseling. And he has preached one of the best words I've ever heard on the spiritual gifts. He's a great man. But reputationally, his class was um, considered much harder than Dr. Sauer's Greek 1 class. And I had some really high caliber friends when I was in college and they encouraged me and they kind of stoked me on, hey, you should take Wilson. He will make you a master of the Greek language. So I was there, I was in Bible college. I was there to be able to navigate the complexities and nuances of the biblical text and be able to communicate that truth to the people around me well. So I was like, yeah, I want to master the Greek language. So I signed up for Wilson's class. And the first Tuesday of class, he gave us an assignment. He said, the next class is on Thursday. By Thursday, I need you to have the Greek alphabet memorized. Upper, lower case, I need you to know the English names of all the letters, all the way from alpha to omega, and I need you to know what the sounds are. Because I'm going to give you some words in Greek, and you're going to have to sound them out phonetically and kind of give me your best estimation of how you'd pronounce that word in English. So Dr. Wilson was asking us to learn to read and write in two days. I was like, oh my goodness. But I set myself to the task. I signed up for the challenge. And so my friends and I would get together and we'd study together. And every spare moment that we had, we made flashcards. We downloaded apps on our phones. So no matter what we were doing, we could be working on the Greek language. And we studied hard. And Thursday, the quiz came. And it was the first 15 minutes of class. We had 15 minutes to get it done. And we were working hard. And it's like, I can't remember what comes after lambda. Move on. Got to keep going. And just move all the way through the Greek, uh, Greek alphabet. And at the end of that time, we turned our papers to one another. And we graded our exams or our quizzes. And we got them back. And there were some groans. And there were some sighs of relief. And I think I did all right. I think I got like a B, B plus on my first quiz in Dr. Wilson's Greek grammar one class. But what Dr. Wilson said next... <laughs> has stayed with me to this day. He got up to the front of the class and with much solemnity, he said the following. He said, guys, the Greek language is an ocean. Today, you dipped your toe in. For the rest of the semester, the tide will be rising and you will have to learn how to swim or you will drown thats not a shiver down your spine like it did mine? Oh, my goodness. It was a challenge. He gave us a challenge. And why do I say that? Because Jesus is challenging us today. On the tail end of three challenges from the religious leaders, Jesus offers a challenge back, the great commandment. Know the Lord your God is one and love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the challenge of our lives. That's what we're here to do, to love the Lord, our God, with everything that we have. So today I want to unpack three things. Uh, The first thing will be the main thing. It's where we're going to spend a lot of our time. So if I'm like 45 minutes into an hour and you're like, man, we're still on point one, don't worry. The other two go fast. It'll only be three hours, I promise. But it's this. What makes this commandment so great? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Number two, what makes it so greatly challenging in our lives? And number three, how can we live this command out in Christ? So, first and foremost, what is so great about the great commandment? When Jesus gives us this command, he's not giving us anything new. This command is core to the identity of their of his people and their religious experience. Okay, it's core to their identity, this phrase, okay? It's like if, as an American, let's see if you guys can do these ones, uh, culturally, follow this phrase, ready? A long time ago in a galaxy, you know it, okay, so it's nothing new to you, the intro to Star Wars. How about this one? Um, uh, We believe that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, such as life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. You know this one. So when they hear Jesus giving this answer that this is the greatest commandment, this is something that the people have heard before. It was first given to God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 6 by Moses as God is leading his people out of captivity in Egypt and into the promised land. Okay? And in the Hebrew mind, in the mind of the Israelites, this command is given a name. The name is the Shema. Have you heard this before? The Shema. And the Shema, it's basically the first word in the command, which is to hear or to listen. Shema, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So it's to hear. And what do we come here to do? We come here to this place to hear from God. And here's the first thing God wants us to listen to and to hear from him. This commandment. The great commandment is short, simple, and sweet. And it's God's desire for us to obey it. And the great, uh, the greatest commandment, the Shema does three things for us. Three O's. Okay, So I want to give you guys these. And we're going to unpack them. Number one, the Shema orients our worship. Number two, the Shema orders our love. And number three, the Shema obligates our lives. There are requirements of things in us that we must turn over to God to live this out rightly. So first, we're going to dive into orientation of love. Verse 29, this is the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. The Shema, the greatest commandment, orients our wandering hearts and lives towards that which is of prime importance God. He is the one who we are to love. That's what it starts with. God is one. We are to worship and love Him. Why does it have to give us this command? Because we are people with wandering hearts, we are people with wandering loves. And so even in this passage, the questions that the religious leaders ask of Jesus, they kind of reveal where the religious leaders' hearts are and what they truly value or see as important. Like the first set of people come up and they go, taxes, Jesus, what should we do with our money? What's that about? Should we pay it or not? I don't know. You know, I've been really thinking about this a lot. What do they love? They love their money and their power and they don't want to surrender it over to Rome. Second group comes up, the Sadducees. They're like, this whole relationship thing, this whole marriage thing, like God's plan for it, doesn't really make sense in our minds. So we've jettisoned part of the Bible, so that way we can kind of do our thing. Like, that doesn't happen today. This is our value. This is what we want to do with our lives. This is what our desires are, and we want God to fit and match it. How does Jesus respond over and over again? He goes to the Pharisees and the Herodians and he says, first and foremost, give to God that which is God's and then everything else will fall into place. Give to God that which belongs to him. He goes to the Sadducees and he goes, you guys don't know the power of God's word and you don't know the power of God in your lives. That's why you're in error. He's constantly, Jesus in his teaching is constantly reorienting his hearers back to God. Live for him. Now here's the thing, this is my guarantee, if you are not intentional about orienting your love and your life around God as preeminent, your lifestyle, your habits, your experiences will pick a God for you. You will orient your life around something, okay? And so... You will drift away from God if you're not careful to constantly return to him. We live in a world where people are looking for something to serve, looking for something to live for, looking for something to base their lives around. What will it be? Should I base my life around myself, my pleasure, my wealth, my politics, my sexuality, my ambition, my job title? Like what? What gets me out of bed in the morning? People are looking for that. People are searching, what's worth it to me? And they'll either give up in despair or they'll find a lesser God if they aren't orienting their hearts to the one living God. The greatest command takes our wandering worship and orients it to that which is of supreme value, our God in heaven. And today I just want to ask, where has your heart wandered What are you living for that you're putting before God? There's a big game tonight. And Norm was very careful to say, hey, that's less important than God. (laughs) It is. But our hearts wander. We want things. God says, come back to me. If you want to unpack this concept of idolatry and kind of how it insidiously creeps into our hearts and lives and some of the things that we lift up as false gods, I recommend a book. It's called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. You are what you love by James K.A. Smith. We want to orient our lives to God. Second thing that the Shema does, it orients our worship, it also orders our loves. Look at the text, 31. The second command is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God comes first, and genuine love for neighbor is burst out of that first love for God. Why does God come first? Why doesn't neighbor come first? Because genuine love for God, is he's the wellspring of life. And he's the ultimate director and facilitator, facilitator of love. Love for God is the fuel on which love for others can run. Okay, And this is a challenge to keep the main thing the main thing and then have our love for others be an outworking of that. Because here's the deal. People are hard, okay? Loving people are hard. It's, it's hard to love people. Um, that's the honest to goodness truth. Have you ever tried to love people? Raise your hand if you've tried to love people. Raise your hand again if you found it at times difficult. All right, you've got some honest people in the room. I'm thankful for that. There are some days where it's like, I want to love I want to love well. Like That's what I'm about. I want to put more good out into the world than bad out into the world. I want to love the people around me. And then you get down to the kitchen for breakfast and you see dishes in the sink. Or maybe they're not even on the sink yet. Maybe they're just like out in the living room. It's like, are you serious? They can't even take care of their dishes. Am I supposed to do everything for them? That's not a story from my personal experience. That's my wife's. Or like, I want to love people well. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to love people well. And you get in your car and you try to go to work and there's a tractor in the road. (laughs) And it's going like two miles an hour. (laughs) And all of a sudden that idea of like loving people well and being patient with them, it has been jettisoned and you're muttering under your breath and you're going to swerve around them even though you're on a hill. You're in my way. Loving people is difficult. If we're honest, loving people is hard. That's why we need a transcendent why to our loving and serving of others. We need a transcendent why that can empower us as we love and lead into the messy, cumbersome, and sometimes painful lives of those around us sacrificially in service. Let me show you how this works. God is my first love. And if I love God, I love his people. And I want to be able to articulate and communicate the truth of God to his people well. That's why you'll find me at 2 a.m. in the library studying Greek Grammar 1 for all my might. The why gives breath and life and action and unction to the hard things. I love God first and foremost. And he has given me a family that I am to love And I want them to be happy and healthy. That's why I'm going to budget my resources and prioritize them. That's why you will find me on my hands and knees scrubbing the grout in the shower. That's a hard thing to do. I don't like it. But my love for God empowers my love for my family and allows me to do that difficult work. Right? Even in small, the minutia, God's love empowers us to do the work. Uh, I love God, and God has created each and every person in the world in his image. All seven to eight billion of those people. Every person in the grocery store, every person driving a tractor at two miles an hour down Howard Road. He's made all of them, and he loves them. And so if I love God, I am to love them. I am to bear with my noisy dorm room neighbors who are up at 2 a.m. and don't have a 6 a.m. job they got to get to. I'm to be patient with them. I'm to pray with those around me who are going through tragedy. I am to pour out my energy, even at the end of a long day, to serve my community. Why that love for them, that service of them, that care for them is rooted and fueled by my love for God. So the Shema orients and orders our loves rightly so we are empowered to serve the world. First understanding God's love and then passing it on to the people around us. Does that make sense? Alright, good. You guys still awake out there? Alright, good. Lastly, the Shema, the greatest command, tells us what needs to be turned over to God. What's obligated, what we're obligated to hand over to him, to love him rightly. Look at the text. It's all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And I want to unpack these things just real briefly. What are we obligated to hand over to God? When I think about this, um, has anybody ever wondered what the difference between a heart and soul is in the Bible? Right? Like heart, soul... A lot of times in the biblical text, especially in like parallelism and poetry, these terms are can be used somewhat interchangeably, but there are some nuances that help clarify how we turn these things over to God. Okay? So when we're talking about our hearts and turning our hearts over to God, our hearts are the volitional core of our identity, the volitional car, core. Our choices, our commitments, our decisions this is what this is the core lever of action in your life is your heart and it must be turned over to God. Okay? So what do I mean by that? I mean like the choices that you make. And so the Bible tells us that we have to guard our hearts. We have to be vigilant and watch over what are the input, what are the inputs to the decisions that we're making. Because if we're not careful to guard our hearts, our hearts can be deceived. That means the inputs into our decision-making can be based on false presumptions. And if our hearts are deceived, we can even go a step further, and the Bible talks frequently about people who harden their hearts to God and his purposes. That means they have decided, at their volitional core, that they will reject God. So we must guard guard our hearts so we don't harden our hearts and reject God. It's the volitional core of our identities. We need to have soft hearts towards the things of God. The soul is slightly different, okay? The soul is our emotional core. It's our feelings, our longings, our desires, our emotions. And the Bible talks about these if you read something like Psalm 42. We can talk to our emotions. We can consider our emotions. We can stir up and encourage and lift up our emotions. He says, my soul longs for the Lord in Psalm 42. He looks at his emotions and he says, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Emotions are important. They are vital and they are part of your human experience, but they must be surrendered and nurtured towards God. That's what worship is. A lot of worship is communicating truth to your emotional core. Does that make sense? That's what the soul is. I was trying to break this down for high schoolers on Friday. We looked at this text they were helping me write my sermon last minute. And I said this is the difference between heart and soul. Soul is that part of you that when your crush says hi to you in the hallway, does a little jump like, whoop. Right? Soul is that part of you that in your you know, inside of you it plummets when you see that she's sitting at another table in the lunchroom with a guy and he's making her laugh. Heart is the part of you that has determined, has committed, has decided that despite fear of failure, you will ask her out after the basketball game and see if she'll come with you to snowcoming. Right? That's the difference between heart and soul. Heart decides, soul feels. But both of these cores of who we are must be handed over to God. Also, our minds must be handed over to God. This is our intellectual core. This is our thoughts, our memories, our categories for thinking, our logic and reasoning. It must be surrendered to Jesus. And I am a mind guy. I am an intellect guy. I love gathering information, and I would love to pretend like I am objective with my information gathering. But here's the reality and why we need to hand our minds over to God. We are subjective individuals. And if we rely on our own reasoning, our own logic to determine what is right and wrong in the world, we are in a whole heap of trouble. That is the spirit of the book of Judges in the Old Testament, in, in the Old Testament, which can be summarized by the text of Je- uh, Judges 17, 9, which says that everyone did what was right. It's like, hooray! In their own minds, or as they saw fit. They did what was right as they saw fit, or they did what was right in their own eyes. And it led to chaos in the people of God. We must surrender our thinking faculties over to God and allow him to create the categories in which we think. That is very necessary, especially for somebody like me who loves thinking. I can make a bad decision, and if you give me enough time, I can rationalize it. I can give you an excuse. It doesn't make it right. Lastly, we need to give our strength over to God. When I think about strength, this is a really interesting word in Hebrew and Greek. It can also be translated not only as strength, but also as might, or here's a pokey one, our wealth. Okay? At its core, when when God says, love me with all of your strength, what he's talking about is he's talking about loving us with everything that we have at our command as individuals. Can you put that on the screen, Graham? Everything that's at our command. So my question for you is, what is at your command in life? Like, what's your max bench press? Can you use that to honor the Lord and help somebody moving a couch? What resources, what talents, what positions of influence, what spheres of life in others can you speak into? What intellectual property, what trademarks, what... uh, patents, what real estate, what clothing, what people has God given you, what occupational proficiencies, what authority, what might has God given you that you are obligated by the Shema to turn back over to him to be used. What is at your disposal? Are you giving it to God? God. This is God's heart that we would live out this greatest commandment. And I just want to ask you, what would it look like for us to do this? What would it look like if in our day-to-day experience we decided that we would say the Shema to ourselves? Like I wake up in the morning, Hero Johnny, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God, Johnny, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Johnny, love your neighbor as yourself. What would that look like? if we did that. I was talking with a friend one time, we were at the beach and we were talking about um, working out and lifting weights and I was like, do you have a mantra for like lifting weights? I was like, because I got one for me. Like when I'm on my last set of squats, this is what I say to myself in my head. No one's earned more breakfast than you. (laughs) That's what I say to myself. This friend looked at me and they're like, oh, I pray the Shema. (laughs) I was like, all right, such a better answer. I don't even know what mine means. Like, my goodness. But what would it look like if this was our heart? That in everything we do, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. What would it look like if we were to teach this to our children? Right? It's like, hey, proud of the gla- grades in that class. Hey, I'm, I'm glad you made varsity this year. But listen, champ, listen to this. This is what I want you to get more than anything else. If you succeed in everything else and miss this, I have failed as a parent. I have failed in passing on my faith to the next generation. Hear this. The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen, dude, I'm glad you got to be in algebra. I know you worked really hard on that love your neighbor as yourself, that is of utmost importance. Listen, I'm glad you hit the three-pointer. It was a buzzer beater. I want to celebrate that with you. But even if you didn't hit it, if you're loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, man, that's what matters to me the most. This is God's heart for us today, Genesis, that we would love the Lord our God, that we would sign up for this challenge, and we would live out the greatest commandment. And it is a challenge. The greatest commandment is something that we fail, and we fail often. And there's kind of a two-pronged danger when it comes to the greatest commandment. We'll either see that failure and become discouraged by it and fail to try, or we'll think, hey, I'm pretty good at this. And then in the pride of our hearts, we will lift ourselves up and exalt ourselves over God. And so when we come to the greatest commandment, it's a challenge. And we need to be honest with ourselves. We fail it frequently. If I'm honest with myself, I've probably failed the greatest commandment in the last month. Maybe even the last week, probably the last day, and perhaps within the hour. But that doesn't mean that I forfeit trying to live out the greatest commandment. And this is my last point for you. As you live out the greatest commandment, you must do so empowered by God. You cannot do this in your own strength. As Jesus confronts people with the greatest commandment, there's a passage in Luke chapter 10 verse 29 where a man comes with the greatest commandment and he seeks to justify himself by it. And he says, who is my neighbor? Because I want to just make sure that I'm loving the right people. You know what Jesus says back? He tells them the story of the the Good Samaritan. And essentially the core teaching of that story is everyone is your neighbor, dude. How you doing at it? (laughs) It's tough stuff. But here's the fact of the matter. We need to trust God in the midst of this. Obeying the greatest commandment and loving God is only something we can be empowered to do once we realize and accept God's love for us. Let me paraphrase something that Tim Keller once said. We enter into God's heart of love when we live a lawful life. But we're only able to live a lawful life When we understand God's heart of love is for us. And this is the challenge of the back half of Mark is we are seeing God's love poured out in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna have Zach and Norm come up because we're closing now. Christ's painful road to the cross demonstrates God's love for us. He goes to the cross to take away our sins. He goes to the cross to defeat death and the grave. He goes to the cross to show us that while we are sinners, while we are imperfect and unable to completely live out the Shema, while we are yet sinners, He died for us and held nothing back. He gave up His life for us so that in Him, we can love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. That's the greatest challenge. And that's the one for us today. Will you guys stand up? We're going to read our next step together. I've only got one for you today. What do you think it is? Let's read it together. If we can put it on the screen. Out loud, all together. Here, O Genesis Church in Petoskey, The Lord, our God, is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Next slide. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are no next steps greater than these. Norm is going to pray us out together.
1: I'm just going to take a couple moments here to just uh, search our hearts. A couple moments to go to prayer because we need God. We need him. We need his help. Heavenly Father, we have uh, sung this morning that you are for us, not against us. And we can thank you for that. And this is a a testimony of your incredible love that Johnny has spoken about. Your unconditional love for us. Search our hearts, God. What's in there? Forgive us, Lord, when we have not reciprocated your love forgive us for our wandering love Lord sometimes we love things more than you we love pleasure more than you forgive us for doing our own thing Forgive us for ignoring our neighbor. For not allowing empathy to develop in our hearts for those who are around us. Forgive us for not being for you and instead being against you. We come to you this morning in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you for this truth today that you've laid on Johnny's heart from this passage. Your truth orients us. It reveals to us the true point, the true meaning of life. Help us to realize where we need to turn to you as a church and as individuals, what we need to turn over to you today. May we lay down our pride May we lay down our our misguided loves. May we fully put you and place you in the highest place of our lives. You have opened our eyes today and I praise you. May we respond today in a way that honors you. And all of God's people said, I want to thank you for coming today. Thank you for watching and thank you for being a part of this community. And here as we end up our time, you may need more prayer. You may want to be prayed with uh, here this morning or maybe someone's on your heart that you'd like to pray for. Our prayer team is up here on my right, your left. And I encourage you to come on up. Peace be with you. Have a great day.